Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Aaron Ring. Aaron is an associate professor of immunobiology at Yale University for a little while longer. He's moving his lab to the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle in the summer of 2023. Early in his scientific career, Aaron has done some fascinating work in protein engineering and immunology. He has founded three startup companies to translate research from his lab, Simca Therapeutics, Saranova Bio, and Stipple Bio. Simca is working on an engineered form of interleukin-18 for the treatment of cancer, while Saranova Bio is using technology to identify autoantibodies that might point the way to new approaches to treat people with autoimmune diseases, cancer, and perhaps neurological diseases. TR subscribers can go back and read a startup profile I did of Simca back in January 2022 to get the gist of that company. The engineered IL-18 has shown comparable monotherapy efficacy in animals to PD-1 inhibitors, and it has been able to raise the bar in combination with those standard cancer therapies. SR-1 led a $40 million Series B in 2022 and was joined by BVF Partners, Samsara BioCapital, Rock Springs Capital, Aeromark Partners, and Logos Capital, among others. Foresight Capital and A16Z have backed Aaron's other ventures. You could say the venture capital community is aware of his work. In this conversation, we talk about how Aaron developed his interest in science, how he thinks about which problems to go after, and using the new tools of biology and the data they throw off to develop better therapies. As someone personally who has spent a lot of volunteer time mobilizing the biotech community to raise $4.7 million for the Fred Hutch over the past five years, I should also say upfront that I am personally proud to see this dynamic young scientific entrepreneur come to join this terrific institution in my hometown of Seattle. I'll be watching to see where his work leads. And now for a word from the sponsor of the long run, scientist.com. Tired of spending hours searching for the exact research products and services you need? Scientist.com is here to help. Their award-winning digital platform makes it easy to find and purchase life science reagents, lab supplies, and custom research services from thousands of global laboratories. Scientist.com helps you outsource everything but the genius. Save time and money and focus on what really matters, your groundbreaking ideas. Learn more at scientist.com slash long run. Now, please join me and Aaron Ring on the long run. Aaron Ring, welcome to the long run. Thanks so much for having me. So Aaron, I like to start from the beginning So, with a little bit about you. You grew up in Spokane, Washington. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So how did your family end up in that city in the inland Northwest about for, for those who don't know, about four hours east of Seattle, near the northern Idaho border. Yeah, it's a great question. And it really comes down to Spokane's unique geography. Turns out my dad is an interventional cardiologist, recently retired just in the last six months. When I was a very young, until age four, basically moved across the country. Pretty common story for the offspring of physicians to basically follow your parents around to the various spots of their training. And I was born in Tucson, but then moved to Boston and then St. Louis where my dad was getting additional training. And then when he got his first job, it was in Spokane. And that was because it turns out Spokane 
is a really great place to do interventional cardiology because it's basically the biggest town in between basically Minneapolis and Seattle. So it really serves a huge base of the population in, in those areas for really high quality healthcare, including cardiac healthcare. So yeah, we live in Spokane because it's a great place to be a cardiologist. also a great place to raise a family, as, as you know. Not many people know this, but that was actually where I got my first job out of college, okay. the, spokes, the spokesman review newspaper. No kidding. And no kidding. I, I moved out to Spokane and I loved it. It had such a community feel that the Hoop Fest was yep. so much fun the, for those Bloom's who don't know. Yeah. yeah, Bloomsday. People go out and run a 10K and the basketball festival is, it takes over all of downtown with these three-on-three tournaments. There's just a as you say, it's a great place to raise a family, a mid-sized city. There's enough of the big city amenities and great hospitals and Gonzaga University. There's a lot there. So what what kind of schools did you attend growing up there in Spokane? Washington State has just phenomenal public schools. And I, I attended public schools from elementary school and through high school, graduated Lewis and Clark High School in downtown Spokane. Yeah, it was a fantastic education that I got there. Now, your dad so, was an interventional cardiologist, serious medical science running in the family. But were you always interested in science or how did it, how did, where did the spark come from for you? I don't want to say too many nice things about my old man, but the truth is that I looked up to my whole life. And ever since I was a, a little kid, I wanted to be a physician like my dad. And in fact, and this dates me, but my first screen name back when I was like seven years old with America Online was A Ring MD, the number two, the letter B. So I, 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 you know, from a young age, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And eventually, when I did go to college and got interested in research, then it shifted to wanting to be a physician scientist. And then I started doing research in medical school. I, I really just gained this overwhelming passion for biomedical research. So. Now I've differentiated into a full scientist, full-time scientist, but uh, long had that passion for medicine, biomedicine. It still sticks with me today. It actually was a very difficult decision not to pursue further training in medicine because I, I really wanted to be a physician and still look back fondly in, on my training in that capacity. Well, let's get there in a bit, but were you a precocious A student from pretty much the beginning or, or were you bored at any point? My whole family, we were always <laughs> really locked in on academics, even early on. Both of my sisters, I have one older and one younger, always just really interested in basically all subjects. And so, yeah, we worked hard, you know, had a, a growth mindset, always looking to put in our best effort. You did well. You went off to Yale. What attracted you to go work there and study biochemistry? I originally didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, like most, I think... <laughs> freshman going into college. And actually, one of the reasons I chose Yale was because I, I, I was really serious about playing the cello. And I thought I wanted to continue in, in my musical training. So I wanted to be a physician, but also a musician as well. And during my freshman year of college, I would play in the Yale Symphony Orchestra. But then I discovered the lab when I started working after my first year in the summer in Rick Lifton's lab in the genetics of hypertension. And yeah, I just completely was captivated by it, dropped everything to spend basically all day, every day in the lab. So that, that's when things shifted. So I can't tell you I had some grand plan <laughs> uh -huh. you know, to study, you know, MVMB at Yale was more like, I knew they were really strong across the board, but had really great music 
particularly, you know, what I was doing in, in cello, there's some phenomenal instructors out here. So you set down the cello. What did you love about playing music? Oh, hard to put into words. You know, it's just a great way to really connect with your emotional side, your artistic musical side, great stress release, also the type of thing where you get out of it what you put into it. The more you practice, the better you get. So I think earlier on in life, there aren't that many opportunities to really hone your skill at anything. And, and, and so I think one thing I always loved about music is just how much you could get out of it through practice. And of course, there was the opportunity to play in, in ensembles, whether it was chamber music with a smaller group or full symphony orchestras, which was actually my greatest passion. So yeah, it was, it was just a great outlet and just a great way to develop you know, a, a passion, right? But I think it was clear, though, that it, it wasn't my central passion because once I got exposed to, to research, then things really shifted dramatically. What was the triggering event that got you so excited about going all in on research? That first summer in the lab was really, it was pretty magical, right? It was just for the first time, a full license to, and, and this is really a credit to just Rick Lifton, my, my mentor, but the postdocs and students in the lab at the time who empowered me to, to really swing for the fences and think about and test whatever ideas I could come up with really encourage me even naively as a headstrong undergrad to, to really dive in the literature and think critically about what was possible. And one mentor in particular was an MD-PhD student, Chris Colley, who's now actually a brain surgeon at MGH. And he was like basically my idol. I wanted to be him when I grew up as soon as I started working with him. He took me under his wing that summer. And together, we made a discovery. It ended up seeding the basis of a, of a couple of publications that I had later on in undergrad. But the actual process of discovery was so addicting. You realized, wow, as this lot is developing, I'm the first person in the world to learn this new secret, right? This new fundamental aspect of life. It was just, I'll tell you what it was. We discovered an interaction between the two kinases, WINK4 and SGK1, that were regulating blood pressure homeostasis. And man, that was just the cat's meow for me. I just couldn't get over that we had made a new discovery. And then, of course, as you, you go through science, your interests mature and develop. But it was just something totally unlike I'd ever done before. Having a real discovery while you're an undergrad, <laughs> that's pretty heady stuff. Did you like want to run down the hall and tell your nearest colleague what had just happened? It was actually pretty late at night, so I didn't have anyone to tell. But of course, you know, I sent frantic emails you know, to everyone, to Chris, to, to Rick Lifted, letting them know, you know, you guys... You know, it was as if I felt as if, you know, we had the most Nobel Prize winning discovery. But but for me, it really was that special. And I immediately just I wanted to drop everything to, to commit as much time as I could into the lab. OK, so you, how did you end up deciding to go out to Stanford and do this dual track MD, PhD program? I knew that I loved medicine. And when I got interested in research, my goal hadn't changed, but through doing research, but also interacting with people like Rick, who's MD, PhD, and, and Chris Colley, who's MD, PhD, I realized, aha, you know, that wasn't that was a type of career track that I had considered earlier, and I was immediately drawn to it. When you apply for MD, PhD, there's a ton of great programs across the country. It's actually one of these MSTP, medical scientist training programs, remain and have been for decades some of the crown jewels of biomedical research training. When you just look at, you know, across the board at who has been trained and what they've accomplished, it's just mind boggling. So I, I got exposed to a lot of really phenomenal places when I was applying. But what drew me to Stanford 
was back at the time when I was interviewing there in 2008, man, the structure of the program was so appealing where everyone, and not just the MD PhDs, but the MDs, like research was the currency. Everyone was locked into research. On average, you MD students were taking an extra year to do independent research at Stanford. And it was like, man, like I felt like for the first time that I didn't have to explain myself there, that like, I was around a, a class of 80 like-minded people who were just so passionate about biomedical research and not just the class of 10, 10 MSTPs, MD, PhDs, the broader cohort of physicians. So it was an extraordinarily exciting time. And were you still thinking that you might be the MD, more to the MD side and treat patients or at least kind of hedge your bets? Yeah, absolutely. I, I continued and further you know, developed my passion for medicine during medical school. Like you don't really know what it's going to be like to treat a patient and, until you actually are part of the team doing it. And so although, so what happens is, you know, the MD, PhD, it's like a, it's an MD, PhD sandwich. The first two years are your book training for medical school. Then you go into the lab for four-ish years. And then you go back and you finish your medical training, but there it's these clerkships where you go into the hospital on into the clinics and contribute. And so for me, I had actually always planned on going through doing residency, a died in the wool physician scientist, but basically events conspired such that I had the opportunity to start my lab earlier. And so I had to make a big decision prior to continuing on in my training about whether I would differentiate into an MD-PhD or if I would differentiate into a pure scientist, which is what I've become. Yeah. Okay. But before you got there, you're in grad school. Your advisors were Chris Garcia and Irv Weissman. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So these guys are real leaders in the field. What were What kind of projects did you get to work on there and what excited you? Oh, yeah. It was looking back, what guy was so lucky to have fallen into such an amazing interface between Chris's lab and Chris is a genius of proteins in protein pharmacology and protein structure. He really is the receptor king, just one of the most creative scientists I've ever met and just a powerhouse. Like his just understanding intuition about what's important is unlike anyone I've ever met. It was in those days he was just starting to transition his lab from being a basic structural biology lab to one that was going to move in big time into translational biophysics, a, a term that he's coined, which essentially meant that he, he wanted to develop protein therapeutics to interrogate these receptor functions. It was still early days there. I think that the mission hadn't been fully defined, but he had a great intuition that this is where the lab should go. I connected with Irv, who is an absolute legend, one of the greatest biologists, but translational scientists as well of all time. One amazing human being as well, of course. And at the time, got really drawn into this exciting new program in CD47, which was just taking off as a potential universal drug target. Just incredible data that was emerging from the lab from Mark Chow and Ravi Majetti, and then carried on by a host of really talented characters, including my, my, my friend and close colleague, Kip Weisskopf, who's now a Whitehead fellow. And so basically Kip and I thought, hey, you're doing some amazing biology in CD47. And I was just learning skills and how to engineer proteins. Could we team up and create something special together that could target CD47 in a way that never been done before? And, and that's what we did. So that's how I got to be co-mentored by Chris and Irv was at this interfacial project 
we worked on more than just CD47. And I, I should say that the project that, that Kip and I worked on together with Chris and Irv eventually became what is now a Vorpercept at ALX Oncology, um, which was really gratifying to see that actually go from an idea that we had as students to what is now in, in late stage clinical development. With Chris, I got captivated by cytokine biology, you know, with our work on IL-2 and IL-15. And just a lot of the exposure to the cutting edge of protein engineering has really shaped the way that I, I think about what projects are important and exciting to do. So, so it, was, really, it was just awesome training. You got a lot there. You got that cross-disciplinary exposure from people understanding, just learning about basic biology, like what signals something like CD47 sends, the don't eat me signal. And then there's other people on campus doing all these amazing things with developing precision-tuned therapeutics. There's computation. There's a culture of entrepreneurship as well. How did that factor into your thinking in those years? Yeah, that's right. I, I, I'm like blanking out on, I think, what was among the most formative things that I learned from Chris and Irv and from that Stanford experience. You look, I never thought I would get into entrepreneurism, commercializing. Miss, I'm like not even, I'm blanking out on, I think, what was among the most formative things that I learned from Chris and Irv and from that Stanford experience. You look, I never thought I would get into entrepreneurism, commercializing anything. When I, when I got started, I, I, I viewed myself purely as like an academic. But I really caught the bug for wanting to get involved in, in starting companies from the basic reality that I quickly appreciated once we'd actually made what I thought was a promising therapeutic in this precursor to a Vorpacet. Kip and I had, had developed this agent, this high affinity SERP alpha, and it was really exciting in these preclinical models. And I'm like, all right, look, I can make grams and grams of protein. Let's go ahead and start a clinical trial, right? And then you learn, oh, wait, um, it's even just getting to the starting line requires just massive resources. And that's not even before you've even dosed a single patient. And it's going to take years and a team of people. And then once you wanted to go to trials, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars, just early stage stuff. You begin to realize the basic economics of biotech, which is that there's no way to even do the simplest, most basic experiment with an NIH budget. You need to have a massive investment. And the only way to do that is, is through capitalism. I don't know how else you do it. You're aspiring to become a biologist. And most people probably think that's hard enough as it is, just understanding the how genes and cells work and getting those papers published. You can build a great career that way. But that's not necessarily enough <laughs> in the if you want to develop new medicines, physician scientists like Chris and Irv had a lot of experience working with people in industry in, a, in partnership. What kind of culture did you pick up there at Stanford about like how you fit into all this? As a student, you can only do so much, right? And so having Chris and Irv lead the way was definitely a great education. I think both of them had some prior experience in biotech, or Irv in particular, particularly prior companies like Systemics and others. I think they both had some battle scars as well. There definitely was a lot to learn from both of them. I think what we did right and what we did wrong with some of the innovations that we developed at Stanford. But there, it, it was Chris and Irv, obviously, I think, instilled in us that the paper is just that you make a discovery, you publish a paper. That's not the end, right? That's the beginning. And really, the way I think you can judge the success of a project is by impact. And for me, that impact was pretty straightforward to measure, which is 
can we, can we actually test this in the patient? Is this as good as we think it could be? How do we make this into a reality? And I wasn't content just to pass it off to someone else and say, okay, this is all downhill skiing. Why don't you run with it? When you develop something, you really get attached to it in a way where you feel like you need to champion it. And I've, set, I've subsequently learned that if you don't champion it yourself, it may not happen quickly or at all. And so I, this is one of the things I tried to teach to my own trainees, which is we make a discovery that we have conviction on in the lab. Really, we're judged by how quickly we can translate it from idea to first patient dose. That really is where we can make a big benefit. Now, you mentioned earlier that Chris and Irv, they have a certain intuition, or some people call it a taste, <laughs> in what projects you really want to work on, things that are really important. How did you think about that question? And how do you even today? Yeah, it's, it's one of these things like when you think about what makes a great project, you know it when you see it, right? I can't tell you there's like a basic formula for it because if you start saying, okay, I want to study like the most important thing in XYZ field, then we'll all be studying like RAS and P53 and MYC and cancer, right? It's like this intersection between what has a big impact for patients But that's also got to be coupled with what are you uniquely skilled to contribute? You have to ask yourself, why am I the right person to address this problem? What unique insight or capability or skill have I developed where we can really move the needle? Otherwise, you're just, you're doing opportunistic me too type research. I, I felt the process that really moved the needle were ones where you made like a fundamental discovery, either a discovery that was only possible with a new tool that you created or just some totally unexpected, but really paradigm shifting observation. I, I can't say I've made too many of those, t- to be honest, Luke. <laughs> but you know, I think that's one of the most important things I learned from Irvin Chris. As you just said, is just understanding what type of research moves the needle and really trying to make sure that when you're investing your time in the lab, that you're working towards those big hitter projects. Okay. So you did this work that, that ended up being critical to the development of ALX Oncology. So there's one company. You, I think, graduated about 2016. So a lot is happening in these years. Biotech is booming, but you're ready to start your independent research career. So what did you do next? As I was finishing up the PhD portion of my training, I got a really exciting email from a guy named Kai Wooker-Fennig, who is you know, running the cancer immunology program at the Dana-Farber. And he said he'd read some of my papers in CD47 and IL-2 and IL-15, and that he had some positions open in his department and wondered if I might be interested in considering them. And I, I emailed him back. I'm like, yeah, I'm just a student. And he's, I don't care. Do you care? I'm like, you know what? I don't care. Like, I want, I want to start my lab. And so thanks to Kai, I ended a search to try to figure out if I could land a position and start my research early and was fortunate to to ultimately be able to do that in the Yale Immunobiology Department. So when you start your lab, you have to come to this, you face Wait, this really so you, existential you, moment. You, you started your lab before you finished the PhD technically? So I, I applied for those positions as I was finishing. And then I just, I told them I wanted to finish medical school, but I didn't do residency. I ended up finishing my last clerkship in January of 2016. It was my sub-internship in inpatient oncology. It was a great rotation. And then drove across the country and then and opened up my lab like three days later. So I actually technically hadn't graduated yet. 
Um, <laughs> but started a little early. Yeah. So you're in a hurry. Okay. So you go back to Yale. And what, what were you thinking that you would focus your lab on? What was your research agenda going to be? I'll be 100% honest with you. The programs that people may see today were not the ideas that we started off with. This is one of the hardest things about starting a lab is figuring out what's important. What should our research program be? And you don't really fully appreciate that until you open the doors to an empty lab with no equipment or people in it and you got a bill. And one of the things you realize immediately is how good your last PI was. There's this Mark Twain saying that, what was it? When I was 13, I couldn't believe what a fool my father was. But when I was 21, I was amazed by how much he had learned in those eight <laughs> years, right? I, I couldn't tell you that. I felt like the exact same thing with my PIs. I felt like I was a punk when I was in the lab. Oh yeah, like this is all me. These are all my ideas. I'm the one driving. I'm the hands behind the project. The PIs just sit there, write grants, give talks. Like, what do they know? Until you have to do it yourself. And then you realize, oh my gosh, all of those projects that I had, quote unquote, come up with, I was just riffing off the melodies that my PIs had composed, right? They created the environment. They had, they had started these themes that we were all, that we were all basically riffing off. And so when I was starting my lab, I felt like it was important to me to start composing my own melodies. And I'll tell you, the first couple of melodies, they didn't take off. They were projects that, that didn't pan out. And essentially, after the first year, didn't really have much to show for my time. And so really had to take a tough reassessment of what we were doing and ask, all right, let's not be opportunistic anymore. Let's really think about what we're passionate about. Let's reflect on all the research we've done to date, all the people in my lab, what I've done myself, and really think about projects that you know, we're passionate about. Let's back up just a little bit here. You, you're a budding professor of immunobiology, immunology. Yep. And this 2016, 2017 timeframe, the tools are getting much, much better in a hurry to do this kind of work. So how did you think about the tools and what they could enable you to do? They weren't necessarily tools that we were using ourselves, but rather like the output of data was just mind-boggling. For example, when I was just taking starting my lab, the single-cell RNA sequencing revolution was going supernova. And for the first time, we had exquisite understanding of the expression of genes at a single-cell level. And as an immunologist, that was huge because you could now really say, okay, what can we target in this specific subset? Which wasn't always evident from bulk legacy measurements that we had been making. And so I didn't actually use those tools, but one thing we did do that did lead us to our first big wins in the lab was to start tapping into this emerging data. So for example, like one of the questions we asked was, what are the open ports, if you will, if you're a hacker of the immune system, what are the open ports on tumor-specific T-cells that we can hack into and send a more sp specific message, right? Instead of activating all T-cells in the body, like with IL-2, what can we do to activate the right T-cells more specifically? And that was an insight we were able to ask um, and get an answer to with single cell RNA sequencing data that was emerging. And that's what led us to the interleukin-18 pathway that we then really dove into. But was um, this data so yeah, that no, other people had generated and shared in a public way? Yeah, that's right. These massive data sets were being published. And you can take, for example, one of these multi-omic big data sets and extract hundreds of insights out of it. More. There's no, like, you just say, okay, with this data set, you can ask, 
like a million different questions. So yeah, they were these, these, and there's basically, I'll tell you the paper that it was that really was an aha for me was this paper from Anna Anderson's lab where they did immune profiling of tumor infiltrating T cells and were able to extract these using cutting edge bioinformatics, these exhaustion signatures. Nowadays, we have even more like cutting edge approaches, but at the time it was really groundbreaking. And so they had focused on checkpoint receptors that time, trying to find the next checkpoint target. And so I thought, okay, this is phenomenal stuff, right? They're implicating lag three and Tigit and others, Tim three. And I wonder, well, what about cytokines, right? Because that's what we were interested in. And so we basically formed a pretty similar analysis to what they did in their paper and really quickly zeroed in on, on those few cytokine pathways that were really selective toward anti-tumor specific T cells. Tired of spending hours searching for the exact research products and services you need? Scientist.com is here to help. Their award-winning digital platform makes it easy to find and purchase life science reagents, lab supplies, and custom research services from thousands of global laboratories. Scientist.com helps you outsource everything but the genius. Save time and money and focus on what really matters, your groundbreaking ideas. Learn more at scientist.com slash long run. Now, this is really interesting because in the mid-2010s, this was the moment when checkpoint inhibitors that unleashed or released the brakes on the immune system against cancer were really ascendant, becoming big drugs for lots and lots of cancer patients. And there was this search going on for other complementary checkpoints that might be combined with the PD-1. And then, of course, there was all this effort to figure out, well, why do some people respond and not others? And there, there was this issue with the T-infiltrating lymphocytes. So that the crowd was moving there. <laughs> but not a whole lot of people were thinking about these cytokines, these inflammatory proteins like interleukin-2, which had this ability, we've known for a long time, to stimulate T-cells to go after cancer cells. But there was a problem there with attacking it being not specific enough. It was the T cells would start attacking other healthy cells, which you don't want. So you looked at that and thought, huh, can we do something here? I'd caught the bug for cytokines with Chris Garcia, actually. One of my first papers out of his lab, I think the very first was where we tried to teach an old dog new tricks. We, we engineered the very first CD122 biased IL2. Those are now called not alpha IL2s. This was an interleukin-2 super kindly published, and this is like 2010, 2011. So PD-1 hadn't been improved yet, but already there was a sense that the data was exciting for checkpoints and what else could be done. IL-2 is one of the OGs, the original gangsters of yeah. immunotherapy. It was like objectively the first drug that unambiguously established that the immune system could be powerfully harnessed against cancer. If you look at the historical data of IL-2 from studies that were done by legends like Steve Rosenberg, Mike Atkins, Mario, I mean, you can go down the list. It's a who's who of just the, the Mount Rushmore of the therapists have worked on IL-2. Back to um, the 80s. Yeah, exactly. And they, they objectively cured some patients with IL-2 melanoma and renal cell cancer. The issue with IL-2, though, is that most patients didn't respond. It only had about a 16% response rate. And it was just a brutal regimen to take. Essentially, patients were getting this three times a day, but had just terrible side effects, this vascular leak syndrome. The patients essentially had to be on blood pressure medications to keep their blood pressure up, pressors, and, and it's oftentimes have to be managed in the intensive care unit. And you're basically getting this five days a week for weeks on end. 
not an easy medication. However, some patients who responded were cured. So kudos to, I mean, IL-2 is amazing, right? We had been studying IL-2 in Chris's lab. He solved the structure of IL-2 and complex with its receptor. And we wondered, could we make a better IL-2? We tried to decouple the anti-tumor function from the toxicities. And without going into the details, we made this interesting molecule that, that seemed to have those properties. And in mice, it was a little bit better and it had less toxicity. In looking back on that data, when I started my own lab, I thought we made IL-2 better, but it still really wasn't good enough. Like if you thought about what we were able to achieve with an next-gen IL-2, it still paled in comparison to what you would see preclinically with like NIPD-1, NICTLA-4. And so that really led us to the question, were there better cytokines than IL-2? And this isn't a slighted IL-2, but rather just to say it wasn't selective enough, as you just said. So, so that's where we really, we analyzed this single cell RNA sequencing data where for the first time we had just exquisite levels of understanding of individual gene expression and in individual cells. You could ask the question, what are the cytokine receptors that are more specifically expressed on anti-tumor T cells than all other T cells? And IL-18 receptor just screams at you. It's not expressed on, on naive T cells. The vast majority of T cells don't express it. It, so you really can send a much more selective message. And that was an aha moment for us. But there had already been people that had tried to make recombinant IL-18 and give that as a cancer drug. And that didn't work. Why was yeah, that? Yeah, that's right. And that was one of the fun things as you started analyzing this data. Huh, IL-18, this is really interesting. You PubMed IL-18, you're like, oh my goodness, this has been tested pretty extensively in the clinic before. I'm not the first one with this idea that IL-18 could be exciting. And in fact, GlaxoSmithKline had done just almost heroic efforts in translating recombinant IL-18 through a phase two study in melanoma patients. They were way ahead of the curve, that group that, that innovated on IL-18. And they made this, it was a really head scratcher. Here you had the right cytokine hitting the right pathway in the right T cells, the right patient population. Because at the time they did these studies the patients were all like immunotherapy naive. They're all melanoma patients. We would die to get those type of patients in the trial now. You couldn't. It wouldn't be ethical. Right? They're they going to get NIPD1, of course, and then other things. And what they found was IL-18 for a cytokine was remarkably well tolerated, but it absolutely bombed. There was zero efficacy. In 63 melanoma patients that were treatment naive, they only had one partial response. So they very appropriately shelved the program. And for us, that was just a shocking paradox. We're like... This should have worked. It was the right pathway in the right patients. It, we should have seen something. And, and again, so that wasn't that clinical trial in the pre-single cell analysis era. Yep, Maybe yep. they didn't have that full visual resolution that you and others were able to tap into later about something, something more specific is going on here. I should tell you that one of the embarrassing things about this <laughs> whole program is that if I'd been a better immunologist, and I don't claim to be an immunologist, but if I'd been a better one, I probably wouldn't have needed that single cell RNA sequencing to tell me that IL-18 would be a good target in cancer immunotherapy. I mean, this wasn't like this was some completely obscure pathway. It's pretty well-studied cytokine, and its potential importance in stimulating CD8 T cells, natural killer cells, and Th1, those are all the right types of immune cells that, that target tumors, was appreciated. So I should be, the idea that IL-18 could be beneficial in cancer was not a unique insight that we had, and it didn't require a single cell. But for us, we got attracted to it from diving into that data, and it was really screaming out to us that it could be important. So yeah, full, full caveats there. 
at what point did you find that there was this decoy IL-18 that was getting in the way? The truth is that that GSK had been had tested that in their own trials. Right? They had actually, with their own data, implicated the, the decoy receptor. So basically, it turns out IL-18, it's such a powerful signal that we've evolved over the millennia of very potent feedback regulator of IL-18. It's called interleukin-18 binding protein. It's an ultra-high affinity decoy receptor. It's a jamming signal that our cells make to make sure that we don't get runaway inflammation. And it turns out that GSK found when you treat patients with recombinant IL-18, the IL-18 binding protein shoots up by orders of magnitude in the patient's blood. So they were aware of this. And the truth is that they had thought they'd gotten around the problem because when you look in the blood, the amount of IL-18 they were giving was way more than the induced amounts of IL-18 binding protein. So they thought they'd overcome the problem. And I think that was a reasonable thing. But the insight we had was we realized, well, how is IL-18 binding protein regulated? Turns out it's, a, it's an interferon regulated gene, which is a, a classic hallmark of a checkpoint. That's exactly how PDL1, the ligand for PD1, is regulated and many others. And so we thought, okay, maybe actually the blood isn't the place to look. It's actually the tumor where the IL-18 binding protein is the problem. And that's where we started our analyses. And we basically found that tumors are laden. They express extremely high amounts of this binding protein across a very wide variety of tumors, not just the hot tumors, but many, many different types of tumors express high levels of the binding protein. And we found actually the levels of the binding protein are much higher in the tumor than the blood. So the problem with recombinant IL-18 therapy was that the drug was working basically everywhere except where it was needed. The tumor <laughs> was the site that was most resistant to IL-18, but they were activating, you know, IL-18 was able to, to, you know, the recombinant protein was acting just fine everywhere else. So the tumor is very good at throwing up this defense mechanism from the immune system and the IL-18 binding protein is, is structurally similar to the IL-18 you're giving? It's like a secreted receptor decoy. So it's a different protein. It's a separately encoded gene, but it binds the IL-18 with exquisitely high affinity and blocks its ability to engage the IL-18 receptor. Okay. So what was your thought in terms of what kind of product profile did you think might be able to circumvent this jamming mechanism? We weren't even thinking about a product at that point. We just wanted to ask a very basic question, which is, would, have I, would IL-18 have worked if there was no IL-18 binding protein? What if we could remove that from the equation? Not an easy thing to do because it's a really high affinity protein. It's expressed in the tumor microenvironment. It turns out my next door neighbor at Yale, Richard Flavel, they actually had the IL-18 BP knockout mouse. So we got that mouse, we implanted it with tumors, and we found that, that if you treated those mice with wild-type IL-18, now their tumor shrunk pretty dramatically, but if you took their wild-type litter mates that, that had the binding protein, that there was basically no effect, just like GSK had seen in patients. So that made us think, okay, yeah, this really is exciting. IL-18 binding protein appears to be a barrier to effective IL-18 therapy. And so we used all the skills we learned with my lab, these approaches that I learned from Chris Garcia to use directed evolution to make versions of IL-18 that were fully impervious to this decoy receptor, but still fully capable of signaling. And to make a long story short, these decoy-resistant IL-18s captured all the pharmacology that we'd seen with the binding protein knockout. 
essentially they had really robust single agent activity that was at the level of an NIPD1. So much different than IL-2 and IL-15. They really appeared robust on their own and had a really nice synergism with those checkpoints in many different tumor models. So that was just when I got that very first preliminary preclinical model data in hand, I realized, oh, wow, this is special. This is something that I hadn't seen before. The level of activity was much higher than I'd seen with CD47 and IL-2. And it was at that moment that I knew, yeah, we had to push hard to get this in the clinic as fast as possible. So now you've gotten around the decoy and you're seeing in animals that this can be combined with the PD-1. That's releasing the break, so to speak, on the immune system. And your IL-18 is pressing on the gas, so to speak, bringing in some of these immune cells that can attack the tumor. You think you've really got something here. And it's something to both publish in the academic literature and start a company around. From my experience at Stanford, I knew that I didn't want to wait to publish the paper to start translating. I actually founded a company, Simca Therapeutics, almost three years before we published the paper because I knew that we had to get started right away. Uh, It would take a lot of money and I'd need a lot of help to do it. Yeah, that was a big difference from what we done at Stanford. Stanford, we published the papers and then we got interest. And the time it took from going for the initial discovery to dosing the first patient, it took like you know, almost a decade at Stanford with IL-2, CD47. But with IL-18, we made this insight in mice. And then within four years, we had opened up a phase one study. And Simca is, is out there enrolling patients today to test this concept. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're well in, into a phase one, two clinical study about to open up a combination study with the NIPD-1. Yeah, it's a really exciting time to now really pressure test some of those ideas and observations that, that we made preclinically and see how well they hold up in the real world. Yeah. And this isn't the only company you're working on. There's another one called Saranova Bio. What's that one about? Yeah, well, <laughs> Saranova Bio really reflects an existential crisis that I've had in my career. I've spent most of my time engineering proteins as therapeutics and, and using them to interrogate complex immunoregulatory biology. After starting my lab, I've come to realize that all of the ability that we have honed in the lab to engineer proteins is not at all rate limiting to making transformational medicines for patients, especially in 2023, where we have generative AI and protein engineering techniques have never been more democratized more powerful. Our ability to make drugs is no longer, and has not been for a long time, rate limiting. It's really about knowing what to drug and when to drug it. It's about knowledge of the biology and about targets. And so that was that's a big question we've been wondering about for the past several years is how can we generate unique insights into what's therapeutically actionable and important in patients? And so the aha moment for us was really this realization that instead of engineering drugs to interrogate the immune system, why don't we do the opposite? Why don't we study the natural drug products the immune system makes, namely patient autoantibodies, and see how they influence patient health and disease outcomes? Thinking about autoantibodies like genetics, like genetic alleles, that autoantibodies could explain differences between outcomes in people in the same way that our unique gene signature does. So that, that's been a fascination, almost an obsession we've had for the past few years. It's been really gratifying and immensely interesting one, particularly as COVID hit, we were able to debut some of these new approaches and technologies we developed and, and show that, yeah, these autoantibodies make a big difference. 
Now, when you talk about autoantibodies, you're talking about antibodies that are taking their firepower that would normally be reserved to go against foreign invaders like viruses or bacteria that we take in and instead are attacking self, healthy cells that it's that we've evolved to hopefully most of the time leave alone. <laughs> and so autoantibodies are generally thought of as a bad thing that, that leads to autoimmune disease. Exactly. You're, yeah. <laughs> you're thinking about this in a different way. What can we learn from the presence of these autoantibodies to help us think about new treatments? That's exactly right. It, it turns out what you just said is exactly right. If you ask, including physicians, 99 out of 100 of them are going to tell you when you say autoantibody, yeah, these are the etiologic, the causal agents that drive autoimmune disease, right? They're, they would be, it would be bad, they're deleterious for our health. But it turns out that there's been emerging data from many different fields over decades that not all autoantibodies are bad, that some are beneficial. Lloyd Old himself, one of the fathers of immunotherapy, he established that patients that make antibodies that target their tumors live longer than those that don't. He, in fact, cloned out a number of targets that are now being pursued today for immunotherapy by looking at patient immune and, auto and autoantibody responses. Um, but even in diseases like autoimmune disease, turns out some patients make anti-inflammatory autoantibodies, like anti-cytokine antibodies that lessen their disease. So for example, there are patients that make their own NITNF and they have less severe disease. There's patients that make in, in cancer, there's patients, breast cancer patients who make their own HER2, anti-HER2. It's as if they're making their own trastuzumab. Even in diseases that aren't typically thought to be immune-related, like Alzheimer's disease, neurodegeneration, protective autoantibodies have been isolated. And in fact, one FDA-approved drug, aducanumab, an anti-amyloid antibody, is actually cloned out of a very elderly individual that was cognitively intact. Um, so not only can they tell you about what is potentially important to drug, but the antibodies themselves can even be drugs. This is a proven fact. So there's this dichotomy that autoantibodies, just like you know, genes can be beneficial, gene mutations can be beneficial or harmful, right? So our idea is, wouldn't it be great if we just had a way of studying autoantibodies in an unbiased way, in the same way that you can sequence a patient's genome from a drop of blood? Can we say, what is the full complement of autoantibodies that you have? And that's where we got started because there really wasn't, you know, an exome sequencing-like technology for autoantibodies. It's something we wanted to make. And so you're developing technology to identify these autoantibodies in an unbiased way, good or bad. That's right. That's been our mission. And to do that, we basically went back to our roots in protein engineering and repurposed some of these, these same technologies for directed evolution. But instead of using them to evolve one individual protein and test millions and billions of variants, we use those same technologies to scan thousands of unique human proteins. And that's this technology we developed called REAP rapid extracellular antigen profiling. And essentially what it allows us to do, it's, it's like a molecular search engine where you can take just a little bit of patient blood, add it on top of this collection of yeast that all have different proteins on their surface, and then rapidly isolate those yeasts that have a protein that's being recognized by a patient antibody. We actually had been working on this with the idea of applying it to cancer to find new antibody responses that were driving good outcomes in checkpoint immunotherapy. But the pandemic hit. And so immediately we wanted to know, okay, might autoantibodies be present in patients who have COVID-19? And we saw a screaming signal from those very first studies, seeing patients with COVID made a ton of new autoantibodies 
and that many of them made autoantibodies against cytokines. And in fact, John Laurent Casanova's group actually scooped us. They found that patients who make anti-interferon autoantibodies are like 20 to 200 times more likely to die of COVID-19, really underscoring the importance of interferon in fighting COVID, but also saying, hey, this is a big problem in the population. Turns out 20% of all COVID deaths associated with these anti-interferon autoantibodies. We found, yeah, we validated that. We found that's just the tip of the iceberg. There were dozens of other pathways that were being perturbed by these patient autoantibodies that made COVID worse. But we've also been wanting to look at examples where autoantibodies made diseases better. And so we've, in my lab and now at the company Seranova, which I founded in 2021, seeded by Foresight, we've been looking in autoimmune disease and cancer to try to find autoantibodies associated with better outcomes, patients who respond better to, ther- to checkpoint immunotherapy and cancer, patients who have less severe autoimmune disease. And this has been fascinating. It's like we're doing the first autoantibody-wide association studies, genome-wide association study investigations in new diseases implicating pathways that really I would have never considered but for this type of data. It's really interesting that these autoantibodies are being produced. And Mother Nature is trying to tell us something, <laughs> but we haven't really been listening <laughs> until recently. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's that, I think the best way to find a drug target is to look at what's important in human biology. And I think that's not a controversial thing to say. People have been using human genetics to find some of the best targets you know, for decades. And this is just one orthogonal access. We're saying, okay, why did some patients do better or worse? And you can pinpoint these autoantibodies. One thing I'll tell you that's been really shocking to me in studying autoantibodies, we all have them, okay? Even healthy people have autoantibodies. They increase with age. In general, the average healthy adult we found has around 10 different autoantibodies. The other thing we found is that nearly every single protein is targeted by an autoantibody in at least some individuals. So in the same way that the entire genome has been sampled by gene mutation across the population, it appears the same is true with autoantibodies. And you can find patients walking around with a biologic drug in their system targeting your favorite protein. Now, wouldn't it be interesting to see what's going on in that person? That's essentially how I've been thinking about these autoantibodies. Wow, 10 different autoantibodies? I did not know that. (laughs) Something to look forward to as we all get older. Gosh, I'm almost out of time here, Aaron. I want to ask you about your big move. You've been at Yale now for, I guess, seven years or so. There's so many great colleagues there. I know you mentioned COVID. You you did this work with Akiko Iwasaki on finding autoantibodies, cerebral spinal fluid of COVID patients complaining of neurology. I mean, these were some of the some papers from the pandemic I, that really jumped out at me. You're doing a pretty some pretty cool work there. But you decided in the last year or two to make the move out to the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle, back in the Northwest, where you're originally from. Why did you decide to make that move? Yeah, a really tough decision because I think you just said, I have the best colleagues here at Yale and Yale Immunobiology. It's just an incredible department with amazing people. But the Fred Hutch is just presents incredible opportunity right now. It's just, it's taking off like a rocket ship, as you know. And, you know, I, I have long been inspired by how they've been leaders in just some of the most impactful translations of the last century when they're pioneering work in stem cell transplantation and immunotherapy. And that's become more important to me as my own research has become more translational. But I was just floored and inspired to see the massive investment that has been made into the Hutch in recognizing its leadership by the the Bezos family, 
and the Sloan family, basically about $800 million to support exactly the type of research that, that we want to be doing. So it was already an amazing place, but just to see that, that critical mass start to assemble there, I, I knew I wanted to be a part of it. Now, there is all that history of the bone marrow transplantation and cell therapy that people know pretty well, but there's also the tools. I want to come back to that again, the technologies and computation that are strong here in Seattle. How do those factor into what you want to do for the next, I don't know, 40 years? Yeah, the ecosystem in Seattle is just incredible. You, you think about what's being done at the different you know, appendages of UW and the different in the different institutes there, what David Baker and his team are doing at the Institute for Protein Design is just jaw-dropping stuff. And the, the innovations in systems biology and autoimmunity at Benaroya. And yeah, it, it's just, there's just so much going on. Of course, the biotech scene there too is among the top in the country. It's very appealing to me to see all that critical mass in a relatively concentrated geographic area. Despite saying that you're getting old, which you're not, <laughs> you're still you got a lot in front of you here and ways to mark your own progress. How do you think about that? Is it papers published, patents, companies started, number of drugs, <laughs> FDA approved? <laughs> what, what do you want to be able to say when you're Irv Weissman's age <laughs> that you've been able to do? I think it's one thing that's really important for all scientists to do, and something I try to tell my trainees is try to decouple what you view as success from specific tangible outcomes, because there's only so much you can control. But I think, you know, what gets me excited and what we're always trying to do is try to take the highest quality shots on goal and really making sure to ourselves that we are studying what we view to be as the most important questions we can study that we are best uniquely situated to make an impact on. And yes, some of that is, like you just said, how many innovative, truly innovative drugs have you taken in the clinic? Not incrementally me twos or incrementally me better. How many drugs pulling on novel biological levers have you been able to bring to patients, you know, to bring them some new hope? It's something that's this dramatically different. I feel very passionate about this across basically every area of human health. We need more and better medicines and tinkering with the same number of limited pathways and paradigms is not going to lead to in most cases, transformationally new outcomes. And I think that's what's also brought me the most joy and passion is trying to bring a new option to patients and really be able to look them in the eye and say, we think that this could represent a fundamentally different shot on goal for you. Whether or not those succeed, impossible to say, but I think always trying to try something new for patients is what's been our North Star. Yeah, and if you can make a big difference for a certain number of people, and then a big difference for a large number of people. How amazing would that be? You know, here in Seattle, one of my first stories I got to cover on the biotech beat was the development of Enbrel and you know, the first TNF-alpha inhibitor. Well, it was right in there in the mix. It has had a huge impact on people with autoimmune disease, as you know. And how cool would it be to say you even did one of those? <laughs> That's the thing, though. Yeah, most, the vast 99.99% of scientists are not going to contribute to an improved drug. In fact, most people in industry, Derek Lowe has talked about this in his blog. He's worked on, I think, dozens of programs. None of them have been approved. Does that mean that all of our work is like, no, I think taking these high quality shots on goal, the vast majority of the time, 90 plus percent of the time, they're not going to work. That's just the nature of drug discovery and science. But if you take a new shot on goal and you're really trying, tapping into novel biology, even if you fail, at least now you've taught the field something. You can't say that if you're working on a me too. I just felt life is too short for that. 
it's just like what you said earlier about GSK and the work that they did on the IL-18. You learned from that and now you're taking another step and you're going to learn something and contribute to the community. And hopefully it works out. <laughs> but if it doesn't, maybe someone else will look at it and see some different angle and, and they'll, they'll get there. That's how science works. That's exactly right. Exactly. Aaron Ring, I'm so happy to talk with you and extend a warm welcome to come out to the Fred Hush Cancer Center in Seattle. I wish you well. Couldn't be more excited for the move. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.